New Lights in the Dawnland is a two-hour audio documentary based on five individually recorded voices recounting 13,000 years of Indigenous history of Northfield, Massachusetts, leading up to the arrival of English colonists in the 17th century and the impacts of colonialism that followed. Replete with tribal songs, flute, and drum interludes and ambient sounds, this conversational telling of the story creates its own imagery, reflected by the voices interwoven throughout. Rich Holshue, David Brule, Joe Gravelin, Doug Harris, and Elnu Abenaki Chief Roger Longtoe Sheehan. The five narrators featured here spoke from memory and the heart where memory dwells, without notes or prior discussions as to the intended content of their testimonials. The five voices belong to old friends who have paid increasing collective attention to their own indigenous culture and history, some having discovered tribal connections of their own later in life and relearning history from a native viewpoint. Buttressed by a decade of archaeological research of their homelands and battlefields, underwritten by the National Park Service, it is a study of the confluence of the focused efforts of the five in the service of wider understanding and inclusion among themselves and non-Indigenous neighbors. This production, then, has its roots both in studied intertribal memory and legend passed through a multi-generational conduit of oral tradition, as well as more recently, the surfacing of old letters, diaries, and other written colonial records reflecting firsthand eyewitness observations and encounters with Native people. Its sources are also enriched through spiritual interaction with natural surroundings. This production does not purport to be a polished or footnoted scholarly historical rendering of Squawkeeg's past. Library bookshelves groan with Eurocentric studies that have long peddled destructive stereotypes and historical inaccuracies. The response of these narrators is a passionate reaching out in search of balance and reciprocity in the telling of a shared past as a cornerstone to peace and reconciliation. It is dedicated to the life, accomplishments, and speedy recovery of Doug Harris and his devoted new wife, Genevieve Fraser.
That's a greeting song. The important word in it is Guando Day. There's a lot of different greeting songs and almost all of those and all the welcoming songs you'll hear among all the Wabanaki people. Generally, there's the Guando Days in there. It's just an old way of saying hello. This way, when somebody sings a greeting or a welcoming song and you hear that, you know that they're singing a greeting or a welcome to you. And, you know, that's because of the Guando Day in it. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So, this is a, a Micmac greeting song from up in Nova Scotia. I'll introduce myself in the Beneke language, of which I am a student first. Hello, my friends. Um, it's good to see you today. In Delewezilisal, I am called Rich. I am of this place, known traditionally as Wontastagok, today as Brattleboro, in Sokoki country, which is part of the Beneke homelands. Sokoki is the modern equivalent of the original Beneke place referent Sukwakiak, which is the original name of what is now called Northfield, Massachusetts. It is a region, not a particular place on the map, but there are lessons and stories inside of how that comes to be. So here we are. We are in Sokoki country, the land of the Sukwakiak. We acknowledge that we're occupying and benefiting from this indigenous land upon which we are standing or sitting, upon which our personal homes and businesses are located. In addition to the land, we also acknowledge the beautiful rivers that are part of these indigenous homelands. The Pocumbatook, known as the Deerfield River. The Pocumagan, known as the Green River. The Pagwak, where I live, my river address is Pagwak. The Miller's River, over near the French King Bridge, if you're familiar with that site. The Chicopee, of course, it still has its own name, which is great. And of course, the Long River, the 
For thousands of years, this has been the traditional territory of the Pakamtuk people and their indigenous kin and neighbors, the Nanatuk, Narwatak, the Agawam, the Waranoko, the Tungsis, the Podunk, and many others. This is still the homelands of the Pakamtuk and of their neighbors. They're not gone. They are in the air that we breathe. The voices linger in the landscape and riverscape. We acknowledge the continued presence, resilience, and sovereignty of their descendants, the Nipmuc and the Abenaki. We've been taught by indigenous elders to draw our minds together at the beginning of any gathering like this. So we should remember to be grateful and thankful for all that we've been given by the Creator. So we give thanks for this beautiful day, regardless of the rain. We give thanks to the four directions, to all the creatures that are kinfolk and our teachers, to the river that has sustained us to the last seven generations and the next seven generations whom we are working so hard for. We give thanks to our ancestors who have guided us down the generations and who are here with us now. But acknowledging in a sentence or a paragraph isn't enough. We should listen to the native voices. People are catching on to that and seeking out native voices to help bring us back to learning how to live in balance and reciprocity with this planet and with the environment. And you can all tell this is pretty much out of balance. So we're working hard on learning from indigenous people. So what do we do now? Are you all going to listen and learn from the voices that were not listened to before? So the work that I do today is work in service to this place. That's how I would center and ground that. The Mid-Connecticut River Valley, this place called Wontostagok, where we are sitting right now, we are on the beach of Lake Hitchcock. Glacial Lake Hitchcock. We are at its maximum right here, and we are on the beach at its highest level. When it was here 13,000 years ago, we would be sitting on the beach. It's why this is so flat right here. Terrain settled by the water, you know, by gravity and by water. And we're on the beach. If you went out in my yard and you dug around, all you will find is sand and gravel because that's what the glacier left behind and that's what the lake worked with when it created its shores. And so here we are in the mid-Connecticut River Valley, the, the, the legacy of that glacial action and that lake and all of those drainage patterns and the things that have changed. It speaks to what I'm talking about in Northfield here. I remember when Howard Carter discovered Tut's tomb. You remember that, 1922. He was archaeologist Howard Carter. And what happened was when they started getting close, they were down in the hole and they had to lower a little boy down in the hole. And he had a candle. And Carter said, tell me what you see, boy. And the boy answered back, I see wonderful things. I see wonderful things. Because he was looking through at the treasure trove of Tut's tomb. And when I walk through Northfield in the mountains and the hills or in the cornfields, I see wonderful things. I see the magic of history sitting right there under my feet telling me these stories. There was a sand dune across the way here 20 years ago 
when a farm family bought some of the land from an elder farmer who had passed away. And they decided that they didn't like the sand dune being there. Now, the sand dunes were a product of ancient Lake Hitchcock. When it receded and the winds were blowing and then the land started to dry up, all this sand would start blowing on the wind all day long and it would gather in dunes, not unlike it does on the seashore, south-southwest. So these dunes would grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, they didn't want to have to deal with trying to plant up and down the hills of the dunes across the road here, which is just south of me by about 3,000 yards. So they brought a bulldozer in, and it was in winter when they did it because they had harvested their last crop for that season. They wanted to get the low areas that were filling up with water filled in, and they wanted to get rid of the high areas so they could have a more even piece of land to till the following year. So when they bulldozed it, the next morning I walked across the highway, across Route 10 and down into their field, which is right on the Connecticut River. And what did I see in that beautiful blue Hitchcock clay on the bottom? I saw a fire hearth that was underneath one of those sand dunes. The fire hearth was about a foot across, had charcoal in it and bits and pieces around the edges of it. And it was sitting on the blue ancient Lake Hitchcock clay that was under a sand dune, which means the Paleo people were moving through this valley right after the lake receded. They didn't even wait for the grasses to grow or the tundra to get here. They were moving their way up this new terrain that was the bottom of Lake Hitchcock. It was this beautiful glue clay. And they built a fire right there next to the river on whatever day that was probably somewhere around 13, 14,000 years ago. There it was, been there the whole time until they bulldozed that sand dune out of the way and there was that. And that's the kind of magic that Northfield can give somebody if they just want to take a look around. It's just amazing, just amazing. And the people who came here first when that water and that ice went away, two miles of ice over our heads, deep time. The people who came here, the first humans, and we have archaeological evidence not far from here that goes back to, I believe, 11,600 years ago. So we're talking about 12 to 13, to our understanding. Their direct descendants, and you know, most of your professional academics would agree that the Abenaki are the direct descendants of those people. There's no reason to think otherwise. No large-scale movements ceremonial stones opened up for me through my ancestral channels. That communication with ancestral spirits guided me to that as a work that needed to be done. And when I first came into Narragansett country at a ceremonial fire, I asked to be given guidance as to what my work should be. 
And uh, the thing that opened up was this strange notion of ceremonial stones. ceremonial stone landscapes. And I then became a person who was attracted to them. They called to me. In some instances, they are groups of stones that are piled. In other instances, they are actually effigies. I have seen piled stones in the form of turtles. And the turtles have a certain directionality that was addressed by the constructors. And these are things that we are cataloging as a part of the analysis of what these are and how they've been utilized. Ultimately, I began to make the connection of the public to the ceremonial stone so that without assistance from a tribe or with the assistance of a tribe, the public could attempt to protect these ancient sites that nobody seemed to understand them. The archaeologists didn't understand them. And ultimately, I began to provide definition for what they were. This lake that existed here was utilized by the paleo hunters as they followed the elk and caribou herds as they migrated north to south and south to north for their calving season and then for their feeding season. So they'd go up and back twice a year. And there's what's called a paleo corridor. So both sides of the Connecticut River and 50 miles to the west to the Hudson River where the mountain comes up on the west of the Hudson are considered a paleo quarters. This corridor is a very ancient pathway that the first peoples that were here utilized over and over and over again for well over 12,000 years, following the elk and caribou herd. Hitchcock. So you may know that we would normally be right now under about 90 feet of water about 15 to 17,000 years ago. So the last glacier had pushed down to about Rocky Hill, Connecticut, a barrier across our valley. And as the glacier started melting, this whole place filled up with water. And I began to provide definition for what they were these ancient sites, and uh, that became my job. So the lake filled up, and then over a period of time, the earthen dam gave way over five separate time periods, and each time the earthen dam broke and the water drained out, uh, the lake would find a new lower level of elevation and sit there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the weather in this area during that period, which was the time of the paleo hunter-gatherers that moved through this area, the weather was such that it was a tundra environment. 
Wind's always blowing most all day long at 35 miles an hour. Cold, damp, white caps on the ancient Lake Hitchcock. So all summer long, there were white caps, and the water had all that silt stored up in it. And when winter came back in again and the lake would freeze, then the water would calm, and then all that very fine silt would settle to the bottom and create a brand new layer in the ancient lake. So each time the lake retreated to a lower level, it left a terrace, a terrace representing so many hundreds and hundreds of years of summer winter conditions where the silt would pile up. And so in the end, we had five terraces from Lake Hitchcock from the Connecticut River Basin that worked their way up west and up east on each side of the valley here. Main Street is on the top of terrace number five, the, the final real, real terrace. A little bit of Lake Hitchcock had a couple of fingers that scooted up just north of Main Street across the street from the library down where the Shell Bridge is currently. And for the most part, that was it. Hitchcock didn't get too much higher than that. The Abenaki people in this particular area, as we mentioned earlier, are called the Sequakiak, the people of the separated land. Why that name? The understanding is that these folks among their kindred, Abenaki and the Wabanaki in the larger scheme of things, were the furthest removed from their relatives. They were separated the furthest. So this is the separated land to the west of all of the other Abenaki or Abenaki and Wabanaki who populate the entire northeast of the United States, what is now the United States and the Canadian Maritimes and Quebec. These are the Wabanaki peoples. Uh, they live in the northeast here, which they know as the Dawn Land, the land that is first lit by the sun when it rises each morning. The Pocomtuck were centered in Deerfield, in Squawkeeg, which is now known as Northfield. That's a kind of an English corruption of Sokwakik, meaning the people who separated. So the Sokoki were the name of the tribe. The place was Sokwakik, and they are the most southerly reach of the western Abenaki. So the Abenaki would be way up into Maine. You heard the names like the Pinnacook and the Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq, etc. So those would be the eastern Abenaki and from New Hampshire and Vermont over to the St. Lawrence are western, western Abenaki or Abenaki depending on how you feel about that. Some of our current allies and partners are the Nipmuc. So their territory originally stretched up to Squawkeag land and all the way over to the edge of Boston. They were the first cousins of the Pocomtuck. So the Nipmuc are it's a huge tribe, incredibly important to this area. And what I began to acknowledge was that these ancient sites were not necessarily from the history of the local tribes, but they were from a prehistory. And that's something that we're still working out. Carbon dating and that sort of thing? No, not carbon dating, but other technologies that have been made available through the USGS. 
actually dating the last time that quartz crystals within the soil, within the sand, underneath these structures, the last time that they saw daylight. Exactly when that word Sukwaki, the separated land, came into currency, we don't know at this point. I, I tend to look at it not in that this group of people was running away or leaving their kindred, Abeniki. The way that the language works, the Abeniki language, Alnombodwawongan is the word for the language. It is the means or the tool that we use to communicate with each other. Basically, that's what language is, but that's what that compound word is saying. Alnomba Odwa Wongan, Alnomba the people, Odwa speech, Wongan the tool. Beautiful language, the way that it describes how these things work together. It is a language of relationality. So when we create a compound word, these little words inside of the larger word are coming into relationship with each other and they are describing what is happening right now. So I think of the word Sukwaki the separated land, or Sukwakiak, the people of the separated land, not that they were going away, escaping, or distancing themselves from other people, but that they were describing themselves, or their home centers were describing where they were in relation to them. It's a relationship description. So it's about proximity and location, because land is what matters the most. The, the way the language works is you describe what is happening in the moment and how. If it makes sense, sukwaki is more of an adjective than a noun. So it's not a point on the map, it's a kind of relationship. So the sukwaki are over here, farther away from us, who are in the eastern part of the Dawnland. And so the Sukwaki are proximate to their family, to the east. And that's not a problem. It's just saying where they are. They're over there. <laughs> and freely traveling back and forth all the time to visit and for trade. Traveling constantly on the rivers or on foot. The word for traveling across the landscape by water or on foot was by walking. No beasts of burden, no other methods of conveyance. You went on your feet, and that root word is osa. And that word also means to go. It's the same thing. To osa is to go there, and is to walk there. And they're the same thing. That might seem patently obvious, but it shows up in other ways, like the words for to do and to work. It's the same thing. 
work is not something that is to be avoided or uh, is, is uh, well, you know, we just got to do this and I wish I didn't have to. I wish the weekend was here. To work is to do. That's living to work. You work all the time. It's honorable. It's normal. And if you're going about your work and you're living in a good way, you don't need to stop for the weekend and go recreate. So language is really important because it holds these understandings, these cultural understandings, and and it's in English and it's in Abenaki and it's in many other languages. And you need to know that Squakig is Sukwaki, and that's the separated land, and it's not a problem. It's just the way it is. So my property has just a ton of history embedded in it, including the first fort and settlement, which was attacked on September 2nd, 1675. And Meadow Hill is running right behind me as I speak here. I'm on the east side of the Connecticut River, three terraces up from the Connecticut River, with two more terraces to go before you hit Main Street heading east. So my property runs parallel with the railroad track, which runs north and south, and parallel with Main Street in Northfield, which was the ancient footpath of the Sokoke people, and that runs north and south as well. And so that's where I am relevant to Meadow Hill. Meadow Hill played a big part in the original first deeds that were given to the settlers that came here. And so yesterday morning I was walking down in the Great Meadows, which are at the foot of Meadow Hill here, and just walking through the 300 acres that's out there. It had been plowed and and had winter rye planted in this fall. And as I'm walking there on the ground is a piece of pipe, pipe stem. The colonials would smoke these big, long pipes made out of a slurry that probably came from Glasgow. And they would pour the slurry into these molds and create these long pipes. And as they smoked for any length of time, the end of the pipe would get a little bit soggy and lose its rigidity, and they would snap it off an inch or so and just toss it and then keep smoking the pipe. It'd start out at about 12 or 14 inches long and end up, when it got so hot that they couldn't put it in their lips anymore, they would discard the bowl as well. And we find those all buried in those cornfields out there. And yesterday I found a piece of it. They would put a piece of straw in the slurry, in the mold, pour the slurry in the mold, and then they would kiln bake it. And then the straw would burn out and you'd have a beautiful even hole all the way through so that the pipe bowl could be utilized for smoking tobacco. The Great Meadows also contain all kinds of artifacts that tell a story about the indigenous people that were there. So that is the technology. Actually dating the last time that quartz crystals within the soil, within the sand, underneath these structures, the last time that they saw daylight, sunlight. And there's a mechanism for doing that. And it's called optically stimulated luminescence. And it gives you dates for the last time that that soil saw sunlight. And that's the technology. And it's a technology that has been approved by the USGS, United States Geological Service. They have a lab in Colorado which has done some of the substantial field work on this. But there are other scientists 
who have weighed in with this technology. When Reverend Ezra Stiles traveled up this Connecticut River Valley from New Haven, Connecticut, the Reverend was president of Yale. 1660s? Ezra Stiles was a learned person. He was endlessly curious. And to his diaries and his journals, we owe a great deal of insight into the details of everyday life back then that most people didn't bother to write down, but he wrote it down. And he tells about coming up here to what is now Brattleboro in 1762, I think. He would have passed right past Squaquig, now Northfield, traveling up the river, a primary means of access into the interior, so-called. And he came up here with a party of surveyors. They came up the river and they turned in at the West River. That confluence of West and Connecticut is what establishes this place, Wontostagok. It marks it as a significant intersection, Wontostagok being a derivative of the, the Beneke name for the West River, the Wontostuk. He turned in at the Wontostuk to enter the forest. And he wrote down what he saw when he entered the forest here. Amazing insight. Uh, he said, when we entered the forest, he said it was like going into a park. It was clear of underbrush, the understory. And we could travel through it easily, of course, following a, a trail. He entered this forest, which looked park-like to him. If you read between the lines, you can see that this is a sign of silviculture. This is a managed landscape. This is what he saw. This is how the land had been in relationship with the people who had already been here, the Sukwakiak, the Abeniki. And he said, there was a tree in front of me, a white ash, that was 100 feet to the first branch and 5 feet in diameter. Now, White ashes don't even grow to 100 feet anymore, much less to the first branch. How do trees get that big? Well, they weren't cutting them all down, right? And to follow hard on the heels of that observation of this, this um, giant old one of the forest there on the banks of the Wontustuk, 40 or 50 years later, because Brattleboro came into existence just about that time, and a flurry of activity and, you know, resource extraction and industry, march of progress. All of those trees were gone. Amazing. Same thing happened in Northfield, of course, down the river. There were fields there, but then the hills were all cut. These were the planting fields, corn, beans, and squash for the first people that were here. They've been here for 10,000 years. They hunted and gathered here, 
and they encouraged certain wild plants to grow. But there was a time where tobacco and corn came in from the southwest, and that changed everything. It allowed the people to settle down a little bit more and start becoming farmers as opposed to pure hunter-gatherers. And so they would plant corn, beans, and squash in these meadows for over 1,800 years. And some of the pottery that just came off of the Wissatiniwag property, which is on the tail of the Sleeping Beaver, was taken to the University of Connecticut Archaeological Department. And they scraped the bottom of some of these clay potteries, and they found that they contained corn and carbon. And the carbon indicated that corn showed up in this area about 500 years earlier than they realized it had been here. So we now know that people were planting here in these fields somewhere around 2,300 years ago. They did it for the whole duration until the plague caught up with them and the Europeans got here. corn story or, or corn mother story corn mother it's not a happy story because corn mother basically sacrifices her life so that she becomes the seed she becomes the corn and her husband cried and went on about it and he's like you know i can't do this and she's like well this is what i was created for the creator made me for this purpose because it's food that's going to come from my flesh and my blood so it was her sacrifice. And at the same time, it was his sacrifice because he had to give up the love of his life. And so she told him, she said, so long as you do this, I will come back every year and be with you for the summer till the fall. So he said, well, how will I know it's you? She said, in time, when the corn seed grows, you'll find a strange looking grass that'll be bigger than all the other grasses and you keep letting it grow, and it'll grow taller and higher. Now, she had hair that was unlike everybody else's hair. Her hair was kind of a whitish-yellow color, and it was all the way down to the middle of her back. And at the ends of her hair, it was kind of um, green and then a little bit of brown. And that, if you ever look at the silk down at the end of the corn, that's her hair. That's the color of her hair. And she said... You look at the fruit when it is completely growing, 
and you'll see me, my hair there. And she says, I'll be here every year. And in the story, her husband kills her, cuts her throat with a stone knife, and then takes her body by her feet and drags her in a big circle from the outside of the field to the center. And wherever her flesh touched the ground, it became the corn seed. And when he got finished dragging her over and over and over again for hours, he got to the center and he buried her there and he put a mound over her. So to this day, we still plant in mounds and the best, strongest corn grew in that place. You know, the whole story goes on that he had to then teach the other people, the other human beings, the other Wabanaki people, how to grow the corn. And from then on, they had that food source. So in those fields are all kinds of everyday items that you might expect to have a woman and her children having in possession of themselves. Small knives that they would create out of flint, and they would hang it around their neck with a piece of leather. The flint came out of New York State. Indigenous people were trading all kinds of commodities. When settler colonialism came to this area in the form of British, English settlers to the south up through Massachusetts, and following the Connecticut River, water being the highways of the time, water finds a way, people follow the water. It knows the best way to go through the landscape. And John Pynchon and his trading post started trading items that came from Europe. They're in the fields out there. women who planted the fields. They took care of, of planting and harvesting the corn, beans, and squash. took care of hunting, building the structures, and defense. But, uh, but they did leave hard lives when it was time to get out in, and on the hunt. They led really hard lives. And the same with when it was time to defend against intruders. But we find in these fields down here all kinds of other miscellaneous trade items. Every year when they plow up the fields, new stuff comes up. So when I'm talking about walking across the land and knowing what to look for and, and how to read the landscape and understand what some of the stories are, there they are. They're available to be had. 
the English came up the Connecticut River Valley. Beautiful, beautiful place, some of the richest farmland on the continent. And as they were pursuing their own goals as settlers and that process of colonization and taking what was already here and introducing their own ways of going about things, which is not one of relationship, it is one of taking, it is one of separating and appropriating, they were planting little towns and doing their English things. And as they worked their way up the valley, they came to a place now known as Northfield, but which they first encountered and perpetuated the name themselves in, in how they referred to that place through the eyes and the voices of the native people that they found there, the Sukwakihak, the Sukoki, Abenaki people, who called themselves the Sukwakihak. And when the English heard that, they took that word and they applied it to that place where they first encountered these people in a somewhat anglicized form called squakig, the word squakig, which is the same as sukwakiak, but just sort of slurred together. Ears hearing an unfamiliar language and finding a way to nail it down. So they, the word squakig was applied to that valley just below what is now the Vermont, New Hampshire state line. Those constructs that were put in place when the United States itself came into being afterward. And Squakeek remained the name for that place until, I believe, 1723. That was the official name on the maps. When these fields were first encountered, they were already there. The settlers did not have to clear these fields. They were already there because they encountered native horticulture there. They had scouted out the area in 1669, talked to some of the indigenous people that were here, there weren't a lot of them left because of the plague, but they talked to them about selling some of the land that was here, and the sachems that owned the property said they would consider it. So I think of the first recorded visit of settlers to that valley where Northfield is nestled, and that was an episode in Massachusetts colonial history where Daniel Gookin, a very well-known person, well-connected person in his day, Daniel Gookin came over the mountain from what is now Athol, Bakwag in the Abenaki language, following the trail that was there. Established trail, traveled for thousands of years, now a road over Craig Mountain, and came over that ridge, looked down at that valley for the first time that we know that's recorded with settler eyes, traveling with three companions, Daniel Henchman, Ironically, henchmen. <laughs> Richard Beers, who died on the battlefield there just a few years later, ironically, in what is called the Beers Massacre. The Beers Massacre took place in Northfield in 1675, early part of Metacom's war, King Philip's war. But Richard Beers was standing on top of that mountain looking at that valley where he was to meet his own end not too long afterwards. And there was a fourth person whose name escapes me right now. But those four people who were on a mission from the colonial government in Massachusetts to survey and scope out future settlement sites, they had heard that there was this wonderful place called Squakeek or Sukwakeek. 
and they wanted to see it for themselves. And they came over that mountain in 1669, and they saw that place, recognized it as being a wonderful place, which it was then and it is now, and they recommended it be settled. And that began to happen a few years later. They described the fields that they encountered, the water, the river, the, the openness, the fertility of the soil. All of these things were very evident to their eyes because there were already people living there. The Sukwakiak people, who were then going to be displaced in service to the, um, you know, the experiment of settler colonialism. They came down off of that mountain, down into the valley, to get a good look at, at what they saw from up on the top. And they met a native woman there, a Sokoki woman, who prepared dinner for them from the bounty of the land itself. This is all written down. She fed them. They wrote all this down in their journal afterwards, along with their recommendation that this place be settled. It was highly desirable, highly coveted you could say. And that process proceeded to unfold in, in a highly contested manner over the decades to come. That's how Mr. Beers met his end, along with many others. Northfield was settled three times because of that contesting. And only finally that, that settlement as Squawkee, later Northfield, only took, so to speak, in a more permanent manner in the 1720s. But they were negotiating peace from March through April and May. They were, the Indians were negotiating peace with Boston and Connecticut. Now, Boston was a separate entity from the crown. Connecticut is where England held their power. Boston was the Massachusetts Bay Colony Corporation, which was the first corporation in America. And so Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were land speculators, of which John and William Pynchon were both land speculators. And so... That was part of the motivation for them to want to access up north here. And Northfield was part of this whole conversation. It was a bumpy road for the settlers. They were trespassing, and the people of that place made sure that they knew that, just to put it mildly. But they saw that place for the good place that it is, and they wanted it. And so, you know, that's how we got to this point. That process of colonization and appropriation is still in effect because Northfield is still there, and Brattleboro is still here. And the acknowledgement and inclusion of the indigenous people is basically not commonly known and not included in how we think of these places. I see that as a continuance of poor behavior, to say the least, <laughs> and that we can do much, much better, and we need to move back toward balance. We're in a place of imbalance right now and chaos and confusion, with our little corner of the world being a microcosm of what's happening on a planetary scale. Poor decisions being made, and we could do better. That's why we need to know these stories. The land speculators from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they were all about land. Everybody that was part of the first, second, and third settlement of Northfield, they were all employees of John Pynchon, in so much as their job was to plant the fields, harvest the crops, 
bring them back to pension, pay off their debts, and once they paid off their debts, they could then start to become known as the river gods. The river gods were the first settlers that settled next to the Connecticut River that managed to pay off their debts and start to bring in additional crops after their debts were paid, and they became very, very powerful and very, very wealthy. My personal mission is to remind us of these people who defended their homelands, and nobody don't know their names anymore. How come? These were incredibly important people from right here who walked this land and who fought against the earliest colonial intrusions. And there's a whole lot of stories. Awashonks came in from the coast. She was a very close associate with Philip. Kanochet, people sort of know about William Turner, and they sort of know about Miles Standish and Benjamin Church. But that, how many people, if you say, what do you think about Matunas role? And people say, who was Matunas? Well, Matunas was ambushing the colonials coming up from Northampton. He was right there. He walked through this area and got his men right over to where, you know, you've heard of the Bloody Brook site. That was Matunas and about a thousand native people. Fantastic strategist. But he, that's Matunas. Quiapin, Quinnipin, these were people from the coast. Quanquant, uh, you've heard of down in Waitley, the Quanquant farm. That was the Nanatuk chief who had stewardship of the land, and they decided to use his name, which is great. At least if you remember the names, that's a beginning, that's a great step. Monoko, same thing. He was the leader of the Nipmucks, as was Matunas. Monoko played a big role in the attack on Northfield, driving the English out of that area. And when the settlers in Northfield came under fire, troops from here went up to relieve them. That was Captain Beers. Beers made it to the outskirts of Northfield where he was ambushed. And same thing that happened at Bloody Brook. And so another captain named Treat had to go up and rescue the settlers. But that was Monaco. Mutawump has been considered by historians and contemporary English people as being the greatest strategist in King Philip's War. So he got a lot of admiration from the colonial officers too. But these people, you don't know their names. And yet it's really important. These were people who lived here and were fighting to keep their own homeland safe and their own way of life. But who wrote the history? not Mutawump and not his descendants. As a matter of fact, when we were working with the Nipmuc people, they never heard of this man. They didn't know Matunas. They didn't know Mutawump. They didn't know Monaco. And we, based on our English information from English historians, we told them who their generals were. And that was part of this multi-generational trauma. The horror at the falls of that massacre of 400 people they buried it in their cultural memory. They, they didn't have any record of this. And, you know, they didn't mean to, as one of our informants told us, but they just forgot. They left this area. It was a place of horror. They didn't want to. They just left. And, you know, so five, six, ten generations later, no idea who those people were. So they're learning that again, and people are very proud of that. New Come 
the indigenous people got along with a lot of those early settlers pretty well, but the church kept stepping in, and when the church would step in, it would say, no, this isn't good. These are heathens. If they don't want to become Christians, you ought not to be having anything to do with them. The first settlers recognized in indigenous people was a level of kinship and a level of freedom that they had never imagined could exist in human relationships. And they got to see it in these tribal people. And some of them got really close. What they saw was they saw communities working together for each other's welfare. So all these 300 plus acres of great meadows, and then there was the Moose Plain Meadows, and then there were Mary's Meadows, and there were all these meadows that were growing hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn, beans, and squash. That bounty was shared with all the tribal people, and it was utilized as a way for trade as well. So Pynchon knew the value of the land, which is why he, he wanted to speculate the land. He knew what kind of crops it could grow. What the Europeans saw was they saw the way that tribal people would support each other. They also saw how much time they had on their hands to spend with their children, how much time on their hands to enjoy each other's company in a communal kind of way. The women in the fields would sing. They'd sing while they were planting the corn. They'd sing while they were harvesting the corn. Children would run around and play, and, and in the European mindset, that was an action of the devil. Women would sing, and the children would play, and for them, life was good. As they worked their way up the valley, they came to a place now known as Northfield. And Squawkee remained the name for that place until, I believe, 1723. So they came back and negotiated with sachems that owned the properties. And they got a tract the land in Northfield that they agreed upon, and they paid half of what they owed for it to pay the other half when they finally actually showed up and started building their palisade and setting up shop, which is exactly what happened. 
So some of these Indians showed up and said, well, we are due our second payment now. So there was an Irishman. His name was Cornelius Mary. And he had the gift of tongue, like so many Irish do. He could talk up a storm. And he was a very likable individual. But when the Indians showed up and they said, we need to get compensated for the second half of what's owed us, none of the other settlers that were here knew how to deal with the Indians. Cornelius walked up to him and said, well, let's talk. What are we talking about here? And he actually sat down and he created the deed for the second payment of the first settlement in Northfield. So I wanted to make sure that Cornelius got a mention here because he was here when the fort was attacked on September 2nd, 1675. He came again later in 1682. So he was part of the second settlement. And that settlement lasted from 82 to 90. It wasn't a long settlement. Then his son, Cornelius Jr., came in for the third settlement, which was the final settlement, because the first two got burned out by the Indians. And 1714 was the third settlement. So Cornelius's bloodline was here for all three settlements. This was the furthest northern point of the British Empire on the Connecticut River. The pioneering gumption that it took to be here. But it was Squaquig then? It was Squaquig long before that, and it's still Squaquig because the Abenaki and their stories and their relationships haven't gone anywhere. But no one recalls much of that, and that's, again, the work that I'm engaged in and that I enjoy. Well, the palisade in this case was four sturdy walls. Posts were in the ground. And then around the top of the palisade, they would have a a walking platform in order to shoot down on the enemy as they might have been coming in. Now, in the case of this fort, there was actually a natural elevation up on the north end of my property that allowed them to sit on the hill inside of the fort and have an advantage. There were also two streams that ran through the fort. So the Palisade had about 13 thatched huts around the outside of the fort for the part of the first settlement, and then a number of of structures inside the settlement. So on the morning when the village was attacked, all those that could make it back into the fort held it down, and the Indians started burning the structures that were outside of the fort. Those that could not make it back to the safety of the Palisade ended up lying where they were, When Northfield started to go up in flames, word got back to Hatfield that we were in trouble. So they sent up Captain Beers to draw down the fort. So he came up with a contingent of volunteers. But he was attacked on the old trail about two miles south of the fort. And most of his men lost their lives and are buried in a mass grave there. So then... When he didn't come back and the settlers didn't get to come back, they sent up Captain Treat, and he came up with a large contingent of soldiers and volunteers from the Springfield and Hatfield and Hadley area. They came up with wagons and oxen, and when they arrived, the Indians scattered because they were outnumbered considerably, but they were so concerned about getting everybody out of there and safely back to the south that they said, leave everything you have behind, including your dead. You're coming with us now. And they got them on the carts and the oxen, and they protected them and got them back out out of the area. And they left those bodies there and didn't come back for seven years. Samuel Wright was one of those. 
So his bones were left on the side of Meadow Hill, where they finally discovered his bones, and they buried him in the ground that is now the cemetery just north of us here. Samuel Wright be my name, forty-six years would still be I, on ye two or September, sixteen hundred seventy-five. In this valley so bonny, yet so mournfully alone, our small band of pilgrims stood fast, our new home. Ye point to the arrow, this palisade, they called. With the sweat of our brows we built four sturdy walls. T'were no help from the east, no favor from the west, and the devil to the north at ye best. We need to recover those understandings and those relationships for our children and our grandchildren's sake and for the sake of all the people who, who lived and died and changed in this place for so long. Uh, again, I see it as a matter of responsibility and respect. People that were left here in 1669 realized we've got the Mohawks coming across the way with muskets. We don't have the ability to trade our crops and our furs to get muskets because the English won't sell us muskets. The English did sell muskets, but for the most part, if you didn't have a well-established relationship with the English traders, they weren't going to give you muskets. They would give you rum, on the other hand, get you drunker than a skunk, and then arrest you for drunkenness in a public place, and then fine you, and then when they find you, if you didn't have the money to pay them, they would go to your relatives and say, you've got to give us land if you want to get them out of jail, because if we want, we can sell them as slaves in the West Indies. I told the story about Mashalisk. She was the woman sachem who inherited the lands where we're standing now. So she had stewardship of this part of Sunderland, now known as Sunderland, and the other west bank of the Connecticut River down to the falls. And when John Pynchon came along and wanted this land because Massachusetts Bay Colony hired him to get Indian land, she refused to sell out to John Pynchon in the, before King Philip's War in the 1670s before war broke out. And so Pynchon used the old ploy of getting her son, Wata Wollenskin, drunk. So her son was down in Springfield, you know, roaring drunk, and of course got out of control, smashed some windows probably, and Pynchon got his hooks on him and put him in prison and threatened to send him to the West Indies. She relented. She got a couple of beaver skins and a nice wool coat out of the deal, but her son was freed. What occurred, though, was that Mashalisk, in her land transaction, deeded over Mount Sugarloaf to Hinchin. So Mount Sugarloaf carried the burden, as in all of these stories that I mentioned, there's lessons embedded in the stories, so the burden was this giant beaver who wouldn't cooperate with the people, and he had to be taught a lesson. 
There's a place not too far from here where there is a, a stone formation that's referred to as the giant beaver in the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River was a part of Lake Hitchcock, a glacial lake. And the story is that that section of it had a giant beaver who used to eat up all the fish. And then it began to eat up the humans. So they called on their ancient being, Hummabuck, and they asked him to help them do something about this marauding beaver. And so Hummabuck came out of the mountain in Northfield, where he lives, and he walked down toward what's now called Deerfield, Massachusetts. He yanked a giant oak tree up by its roots and waded out into the middle of the lake and had battle with the giant beaver. And whacked the giant beaver across the neck, broke its neck. And it, in its petrified form, settled to the bottom of Lake Hitchcock. And as the lake drained away, the people found this petrified beaver. So that is a 10,000-year-old legend and story of the ancient beaver that was passed down. An organization that I was part of did some research and found a letter by a Reverend White who lived in the area and had been taking the legends down on paper and recording them in the 1800s. Bear in mind that his recording of the story of the ancient Lake Hitchcock happened before the science ever revealed, in fact, there was an ancient lake here. So after reviewing the letters of Reverend White about the ancient story of the sleeping beaver in Lake Hitchcock, the Department of the Interior turned to the Massachusetts Historical Commission and said, well, we're sorry, but it appears that the tribe's science and their knowledge of their own landscape exceeds the science of your people. We're going to protect that hill. We're going to assign it the name, the Ceremonial Stone Hill. And we're going to create a district in a 16-mile radius circumference around that hill as a Ceremonial Stone Landscape District, the first of its kind recognized by the Department of the Interior. this lesson that over the generations was told to kids in the longhouse over the winter was that that beaver did not cooperate with people and he was too greedy. He wanted everything for himself because he built that dam and flooded all the native people's fields and they couldn't, even if they asked him to leave, he wouldn't do it. So the giant came down and whacked him. And so Michalis, I think, had this in mind saying, mm -hmm, okay, yeah, I'll deed 
I'll deed the giant beaver over to you and all of your heirs forever. You know, and that really is what the deed says, and we've got copies of that. So, you know, kind of a clever symbolic move, I guess. Maybe she had some sense of satisfaction. I always say, how many pensions do you know now? Not too many around. His heirs, maybe, I know that the beaver's skins, that whole trade disappeared because of the greed of people like Pynchon and harvesting all the beavers. There were none left in the valley here and further and further north. But So that's Mashala's skin. So here's the thing about the first settlement in Northfield. They had brought in a crop, a really good crop of wheat. Boston was really in want of good quality bread. They couldn't create good quality bread because the wheat that was grown down on the East Coast was really second-rate stuff. They didn't have the soil. The character of the soil was wrong. They couldn't grow good wheat, but they could in the Connecticut River Valley up and down through here, through Hatfield and, and Northfield and Northampton. And so the quality of the wheat was such that they were paid premiums for it and the colonies were really looking for it. So these folks had their wheat. They had brought in their wheat crop, but they hadn't thrashed it or milled it yet. So it was still standing in the fields gathered together on September 2nd when the fort got attacked. So the first thing the Indians did, of course, was they burned all the wheat and they burned all the corn that were down there because they wanted them to get the message, stay away from Northfield. So this is our sanctuary here. And so it very much was a part of King Philip's War, the early, early stages. But Philip didn't want to go to war, but he was forced to go to war because on September 2nd, the same day as Northfield, Brookfield got attacked and a few other places got attacked and they got burnt to the ground. Because the marauding young men just said, well, Philip, we're going with you or we're going without you. By the period of the Second Puritan War of Conquest, 1675-76, known as King Philip's War, with the arrival of the devastating epidemics introduced by the first Europeans, with the rapid population explosion of the English colonials, tribal peoples in the Northeast were desperate, beaten, and starving. So Philip was trying to keep his young braves from getting too rambunctious. He really didn't want to go to war. But they had hit a limit with what they felt they could take from the settlers. And they really wanted to have a place where they could be safe, where they could fish and hunt and be safe. And one of the first names that the settlers heard was Susquakeeg, which meant the fishing place, the good fishing place. So what happened was, Philip tried to gather all the refugees he could find, and he wanted to usher them up to Northfield here, which in fact he did. There were over 2,000 of them. And they spent the late fall of 75 and the winter of 76 here in Northfield because the settlers weren't going to come back up here after what happened to Northfield because Deerfield had also gotten attacked in September of 75, and so hadn't the Bloody Brook Massacre occurred because William Pynchon was one of the sponsors of all these settlements, had hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn that were supposed to be given to him to pay off debts for his creating the settlements that he was financing. So he brought in an army to pick up the corn so that he could get paid back, but they all got attacked and, and the corn never made it back to Northampton. Well, Philip himself, even though they called it the King Philip's War, Philip was almost never in a battle. That wasn't his role. His role was unifying people, getting up to the French, getting over to the Mohawks, getting to the Dutch, and getting munitions and supplies. 
He started the revolt, but as soon as he could get out of Rhode Island, he was up at Mount Wachusett and up in Northfield. But he was not a fighter, per se. It was more Matunas and Monaco and Matabomp and Awashonks and Witamu. They were doing the fighting. In the winter of 1676, there were giant council fires by the Indians just south of the settlement in town here. So all the great sachems were gathering there, and they were trying to discuss, okay, are we going to sue for peace or we go to war? And they had been negotiating peace with, like I said, Boston and Connecticut. And those peace agreements were contingent upon the release of captives, which they were doing. So Mary Rowlandson was one of them. She ended up getting released as a show of good faith. And there were a whole number of captives from the Deerfield area that got released as a show of good faith. The tribes who were engaged in King Philip's War perceived this area, places that are considered a place of council. And as the researchers continued, we found several places that are considered to be the council rocks, place of council. But Mary Rollinson, who was held captive and was carried from place to place, wrote a journal. And she talks about her experiences with such significant characters as Witamu. And having been brought into this area and having been here for council fires. And as a part of the battlefield mapping program for this region, I tried to press to get the archaeologist to find the site of these council fires, which as far as I'm concerned, should be a fairly simple thing for an archaeologist to do, to find a fire or the remnants of a fireplace. But thus far, that's not been identified. We're still waiting for that. Supposing that these council fires are on property that belongs to people who think it would not serve their best interest if that were found out. Well, there is a highway marker that indicates where they ought to be. The people in this region are very generous with the tribal history and wanting it acknowledged. But Mary Rawlinson, a colonial woman, talked about who was at the council fires here. And there are other historians who've written about the chiefs who were here. So Mary Rollinson was one of them. She ended up getting released as a show of good faith. The Crown had a law that said that you couldn't take land unless you got it in fair English compensation by English standards or if there was a just war. And so... Pynchon, being a lawyer, he understood that he could get around this whole thing if he could conjure up a way to say, well, yeah, we were negotiating peace, but they broke the peace and we decided to attack them. And so they fabricated a fake raid on the cattle and horses of Hatfield, but it never happened. You'll never see it in Hatfield's history. There was no raid on their cattle or their horses, but they wrote letters saying there was a raid and that they were going forth the next day 
to attack the Great Falls, and that would have been May 19, 1676. So William Turner camped in Northampton on May 18th, got word that this place, this Indian village here, was basically unguarded and that it would be a good time for all the colonials in Hatfield, Hadley, and Northampton to get up and get their revenge. So the issue was that the English, who were not really soldiers, they were mostly farm people upset with all the losses they'd suffered. They only had hunting muskets. They didn't have really standard arms and munitions to to fight with, whereas the native people had a lot. They got a lot of guns from the French. They got a lot of guns from the Dutch. And they got guns and munitions from the battlefield. And they repaired what they had to. So they were well equipped. Imagine tribe of peoples from hundreds of miles around converging on the campsites and villages at the falls of Peskyomskut as they had for thousands of years. Nipmuc, Wampanoag, and Massachusetts paddled down the Pagwag River from the regions of Mount Wachusett and beyond. Beneki, Sokoki, Penacook come down the Konektakut from the north, Mohican arrived from the west, Narragansetts from the southeast, extended families from the Bakumta Confederation of Warnoko, Narwatic, and Nanatuk move upriver to the falls. So I'm trying to paint this image of what this entire settlement of native people was like at the falls. So they headed out on May 18th in the early evening, loaded with rum, black powder, muskets, and horses. And they came up from this area. It went up through the North Meadows. By then, Deerfield was burned to the ground and abandoned. There was nothing, nothing left there except some smoking ruins. They crossed the North Meadows, followed the Green River up to where... Greenfield Swimming Pool is now, and Route 91 goes right through there. Then 150 men on horseback came along, tied their horses up at Factory Hollow, and waited for dawn. The Indians that got attacked on the morning of May 19, 1676, at the Great Falls, were the refugees, the old men, women, and children that were safely guarded here in Northfield. They had moved down to the Great Falls to fish and to plant. They planted in the North Meadows of Deerfield, which were part of Pocumtuck Territory, and they planted in and around the southern areas of Northfield as well. So they were putting corn, beans, and squash in, and they were harvesting salmon, shad, and oswives. And they were smoking them and getting their food supplies. Native soldiers were camped here. They were camped on these islands. They were camped where Turner's Falls is now. They were camped up to the Miller's River here. They were up in Northfield. But Turner kind of slalomed his way through all his camps, and luckily because there was a violent thunderstorm.
and they worked their way through the night through thunderstorms and everything else until they got up onto the high ground above the Great Falls and Turner's Falls. At first light, on a signal, they all purposely swept down and they all started firing into the wigwams. First light on May 19th, at this time of year, and I've done it for over 25 years, is 4.45 in the morning. So 4.40 in the morning, you don't know if you're shooting at a white man or an Indian, but at 4.45 in the morning, you know who you're shooting at. It was like throwing a light switch. And massacred about 400 people. So the people like Jonathan Wells, who was 16 at the time, a young man from Deerfield, they lingered too long. Gear looted. They were grabbing stuff to take with them as souvenirs. And that gave all of these native forces time to counterattack. So they started crossing the river and attacking the men who were looting there. They got really scared and they took off. They panicked. And nobody had ever been up that way in their lives. Jonathan Wells had never been more than two miles outside of Deerfield. So they didn't know where they were. They knew how they got there, so they went back the same way. And that's where the native people caught up with them. The natives knew that they were camped here and they were camped down with Satinawag. They knew that the English were going to go back down White Ash Swamp. Well, 38 or 40 colonials never got out of that swamp. And then as they fled, they were headed down towards Cherry Rum Brook and they were following the meanders because they followed the brook to get there. They were going to follow the brook to get home and they were freaking out. So the native people, for example, attacked them here and then the English went down this way and the native people just crossed over that little meander and waited for them and attacked them <laughs> some more. And so by the time they got through, about 50 of the colonials out of 150 were killed. And then they kept heading back and got to the Green River and came down this way to get across. And all the way, native people were attacking them. But the key thing is that it's not only tribal memory, but it is coupled with science to bring forth a date. The scientists believe in their science, and the tribes have begun to comprehend the science and to support the scientific analysis and to couple it with tribal beliefs. We know that because when the National Park Service gave us up to $200,000 now to do the archaeology, we found all the relics from that day. They found over 600 musket balls fired on that day, mostly into the English who were trying to get out of there. So 
we're changing history the way it's recounted a little bit because it was considered a great English victory and etc. And in fact, the English paid a terrible price. You know, if you figure almost a little bit shy of 50% casualties, that's, that's not much of a victory. But the English wrote the histories, so that's what came down to us. And that's what the monument in Turner's Falls and Gill still says. Captain William Turner engaged the savages here and killed 400 of them, something like that. 10,000 years of history at that spot on that river as a peace village came to an end and never, ever came back again. Northville was settled three times, got burnt out two times, and finally hunkered down and made it in 1714 was the final settlement. And from that point on, it was well established. And in 1723, they renamed that town to Northfield in a similar naming pattern with other towns down the valley. Greenfield, Deerfield, Plainfield, Westfield. You see all these fields going down the river. Of course, there were fields along the river. That's where you grow things. A few of the Indians did come back into the 1800s and they set up shop on some of the hills during the nice weather, and then they would move away probably to the south to be on the coast with relatives because all these people were connected, all these indigenous people were connected to kinships. We know that 90% of the population died during the pandemics, and people have all been grossly underestimating how many indigenous people lived up and down the Connecticut River Valley right up to this day. These homelands overlapped at the falls, at Peskionskut, and the Abenaki and the Nipmuc and the Pakumtuk, who were the Pakumtuk were the caretakers, the stewards of the land, but they had an open door policy. You could come and fish and plant and meet a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you could, you know, gather medicinal plants in the Montague Plains, you could do all of that, as long as you left your issues at the door. So at the Great Falls, you'd have the Pocumtuck, and you'd have the Sokoke, and you'd have the Wampanoag, and the Narragansett, and the Nipmuc, and all these people from as far away as the Ohio Valley would come and gather at the Great Falls, and it was like the Woodstock of the Connecticut River. I mean, these people came, and they had a grand time. They would marry they would exchange 
technologies, they'd exchange goods, they would harvest the fish, they would celebrate, they would celebrate, they would celebrate. was considered a place of peace because if creator was going to give them that kind of bounty they were never going to abuse it by creating bad relationships with each other so whatever grievances they had before they arrived at the great falls they had to let those go because otherwise they would have been in trouble with creator so they had this wonderful bounty and i would guarantee you that during the time of the fish runs at the great falls of which the Sokoke people were part of, you know, Squawkeeg people were part of, there had to be 20, 30,000 people gathering at those falls. And the landscape reveals that fact. We have artifacts from all over the Northeast going as far as the Mississippi Valley, Ohio Valley. And so that lasted 10,000 years. That was the truce land around the falls because the falls were so rich in shad for sure, likely alewives and eels and, and quite possibly salmon, at least for a period of that time. As we look at the Connecticut River, this river right now is an impoundment because there's a dam in Turner's Falls. So it's effectively a lake up here. But it was never a lake for 10,000 years. It was a glacial river. It ran free. It was a stone-bottom river. And we know for a fact that up north there are petroglyphs carved into some of the stones that are down near the river where it used to run, which is now underwater, but where it used to run prior to being a dam built in Turner's Falls. So we know there's a lot of history that's buried out there right now in the river basin. As we look at the Connecticut River and coming over the bridge out of Burniston, we look and say, oh, that's the Connecticut River, but it's not. It's the Connecticut Pond. The real river was very different. It had a lot of energy to it, a lot of speed, a beautiful body of water. And that's why the salmon and the shad and the elsewives had to make their way north because this was just perfect breeding grounds for those species. And so that's part of what sustained these people. May 19th, the long history of peace, sanctuary, abundance, and spiritual renewal was forever destroyed for native people in this valley. The light and the hearth fires were forever snuffed out. The echoes of joyous greetings and shouts of welcome from the villages at the falls was forever silenced. So that was the loss in King Philip's War that should be recognized and reconciled. The process of reconciliation, which is a word that is tossed around a lot nowadays, everybody wants to reconcile, 
necessarily depends first. Before you can reconcile, you have to concile. And that's a little more unfamiliar term, conciliation. What does that mean? Conciliation means to put all of the cards on the table and for everyone to state, this is my reality. You need to hear this. And I will listen to your reality. And then we can concile these things. But they have to be known first. And you can't jump to reconciliation until you have conciled. That is a process of respect, a process of grieving, a process of acknowledgement. And you can't find the most appropriate answers to reconcile until you have conciled. And we are still very much in that process of conciliation. We need to bring these stories back and these voices. They're here. We need to allow them. They have not been allowed. They have been forbidden. They have been erased because they don't suit a particular narrative. It doesn't need to be that way, and it should not be that way. That is not a balanced approach to existing here in this landscape. The Agawam, the Waranoko, the Nanatokno, Wadak, Tungsis, they all spoke basically the same language and cooperated in expeditions down to Long Island. The Pocomtuck, who have been basically chased out of our valley, were very close cousins with the Nipmucks. And they were friendly, and they had interchanges, and their language was the same. People will say to me, knowing that I might have a story or two to share, they'll say, uh, show me where I can go and see that Abenaki or their predecessors' presence on this land. If they've been here for so long, Surely this would have left some signs or some marks. And to that way of looking at things, I can't do that because a way of being in this place for that long successfully does not leave scars and poisons on the landscape. That's called sustainability. And it is a set of relationships and understandings, not technology. Again, different cultures, different ways of being. I, for more than 20 years, served as a Deputy Tribal Historic Preservation Officer with the Narragansett Tribe of Rhode Island. And it was as that that I consulted on the gas pipeline. And the concern was tribal cultural resources along the gas pipeline. And procedurally, what happened was that the gas line company would have its personnel create a designated area, designated by white ribbons, to determine where the gas line was going to go. And what I had to do was to examine within that right-of-way, which was usually a 30-foot right-of-way, for ceremonial stone landscapes. And then we would have a mapper come behind me, begin to identify for the purposes of mapping exactly where the ceremonial features were. The gas pipeline was actually to run all the way through Northfield, but on the north end, this, this end, people began to fight it. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission FERC did not support the protection of these tribal cultural sites 
ultimately had to take them to federal court. And the Trump administration, federal court, did not weigh in positively on our side. But by putting together a lawsuit that dealt with the constitutional issues, a record was made. And so, although FERC got its way, it also went into the record what our concerns were. So... I wouldn't say that it was a battle we lost, but legally we didn't win it. But ultimately, a part of the National Historic Preservation Act was triggered because in the National Historic Preservation Act, state or tribe or the public can weigh in to protect cultural resources. And at that time, the public had not weighed in. And the public ended up being demonstrators who came and picketed and supported this as tribal cultural resources that required protection. So it was given a lot of public air. And there were a lot of people, some elderly, who were arrested. There are photographs of one lady who was arrested being put into the state trooper's van She was in her wheelchair, and she was in her 90s. And we're very proud to have people like that step forward from the public and uh, take a stand. The people of this area did a very credible job standing in the way of gas lines. And it was no longer viable to go further north. And so it was halted. And there are mountain passes, a place called Hobomok's Trail. And Hobomok was one of the tribal deities. And it was believed that Hobomok's Trail, which was named by Boy Scouts, they picked up the name from tribes and acknowledged it as that. And I know some of the parties who were involved and they took the position that Hobomox Trail was not to be impacted. There are places here in Brattleboro that we cannot use anymore. They have been sacrificed. The severed relationships and taking, the taking that characterizes colonization. They're EPA brownfields now. They cannot be touched. They have been ruined, poisoned. And Hobomox, from the colonial perspective, was the devil. And there were fissures from which steam would rise. And it was believed that that was Hobomok's breath. It's also believed that uh, in these fissures, they were havens for snakes. And so this all fed into the notion of Hobomok being demonic. But Hobomok, in other areas and through other lore, is indicated to be a servant to the people. There's a place not too far from here where there is a stone formation that's referred to as the giant beaver in the Connecticut River, acknowledged as a giant beaver that had been dispatched by Hobomok to save the people from being consumed by the giant beaver. So from that, we learn that Hobomok was a servant of the people. He was not a demonic figure. 
So that's the kind of stories that are in the land here. People don't think about it. Every day they go to work or whatever. They don't look at the heavens. The people that were here burned the hills, built ceremonial stone landscapes all over the place. Why? Because they knew what was going on in the heavens. And the heavens told them where they were in their lives, where they were in their seasons. They could watch the Perseus meteor showers and watch their newly deceased relatives going to Katanowitz House in the southwest, where they were in the seasons. They knew how long before with which solstice. They knew exactly how many moons before they would get ready to start planting again. They knew if their food supply was going to hold out for that length of time. They knew if they had to go on a winter hunt or not. In my town, people rarely take the time to look up or look down. And it's all here. It's just like the young boy said when he discovered Tut's tomb. I see wonderful things. Northfield is just an amazing place to live. It's full of wonderful things. And I just would so much wish that I could encourage people to slow down a little bit. Pick up a history book. Take a look in the archives at the original handwritten documents where the history books were created from. Start to talk to the scientists. Conservation kind of has it backwards right now. We're taking all the people out, and you're allowed to visit, and then you have to go home. People belong in the landscape, but they also need to belong in a reciprocal relationship with the landscape, and then things will continue in a good way. What Ezra Stiles saw was the evidence of that right in front of his eyes, and he wrote it down. And then 40 to 50 years later, it was all gone. And then the topsoil and the biodiversity and everything with it. So we have what we have now, and we also have the ability to make sure that there is still something here in a good way, in a way as it could possibly be for the next generations. A deep, deep responsibility. And I don't see responsibility as something to be avoided. I think it is to be embraced. And it is an honor to learn about that and how that works. Northfield, because of the value of the crops that were coming in in the 1700s, I think there were probably an awful lot of houses. The Stearns family came in in the 1800s, and they were a family of highly skilled carpenters and craftsmen, and they built some of the most beautiful houses up and down May Street. That's where the money was. That's where the old family money was. The Mattoons and the, and the Wrights and all those old, old families, they were here all up and down Main Street. They owned all those properties. The reason that conciliation is not happening faster, and this just comes to my mind right now, is because in a process of conciliation, everyone is allowed to speak their truth and to share it with each other so that it can be heard. And the voices, there have been a lot of voices that have been excluded from that conversation. And we are just now coming into a place where those voices are being allowed to some degree. People are asking indigenous people, what have you got to say? Well, you know, what's your story? And it needs to be voiced by the people themselves because it's their story. And that has not been allowed, I mean, quite literally. The state of Vermont taught in its public school curricula there were no Native people here. And so when you go against that weight of this is reality, you've got a long, long way to go to say 
That's not true. It's patently false. People have been here for 12,000 years. So, how do you get from here to there? That's going to take a while. And it's just starting. So, I don't know, all I can say is, here's the work, let's do it. Our study has revealed a number of things. One of the things is that we, as part of the study of 1676, I personally had to contact all of the tribes in Massachusetts and beyond to get them to support our application to the National Park Service to get a grant to study the massacre. And part of our effort was to be sure that the funding involved subsidies for the Native people to tell their own story, to not have it recounted by an editor, to not have it told or synthesized by whoever. And so each of them, each of the tribes that wanted to, the Narragansetts, the Wampanoag, and the Nipmuc, the Abenaki had not yet joined us. They wrote their own story. And so these are a couple of excerpts just to drive home the idea. So here they were funded and they did their research and they did what they could to write down what it meant to them that particular time. So one quote came from the Nipmucks, which is very poignant. So this is what they knew and learned. All those native generals I mentioned, they were hanged on the Boston Common or shot, tied to a tree. Matunas, Monaco, Shoshonim, they all met their deaths right on Boston Common. Think about that the next time you go through that part. We lost our relationships with the things that mattered the most, the land, the water, the life. Slowly, most of us forgot, and this is what I was telling you earlier. They forgot. They buried it so deep that they didn't even know any of this history by the time 2020 rolled around. And they learned it from us, who had been doing the research in the English archives. And I feel that right here, the land, the native people were separated from their homelands. They left this area because it was so traumatic. They withdrew into the central part of Massachusetts around Quabbin. And because they weren't here anymore, the land didn't talk to them anymore. The land didn't remind them of the stories that they had known and had been passed on. They didn't know anything about the great beaver story. They had to relearn that. But the land carries the histories and without being here they just didn't know it. it was gone and so david tolpine wrote this he said slowly most of us forgot we didn't intend to but we did nothing from the past leadership or the tribal members no record of nipmucks traveling to the falls nothing they had no idea when we invited the elders from the nipmuck to come here they wanted to come to the falls before they wrote their story. They had never been here. They had to see it themselves. No idea. We've forgotten and yet we still carry it all with us. Yeah. What they carry is some distant memory of a horrible thing that happened. Suppress. Suppress that. It's time for us as a Nimmuk people to remember great relationships that still await our return. The trauma that they still feel. They just said, you know, we'd be better off if we were some other group rather than Indian. And you've heard stories about children being taken from the families put in boarding schools. So that was going on right up through the 70s in Massachusetts. Doug Harris, who's a dear friend, 
took a different tack. He said, no, nah, it would be a sacrilege for me to the releasing of those spirits who are stuck here and out of balance with their greatest moment of torment. I don't want to reopen those wounds, so I'm not going to tell you anything that I might know about what happened. He has since changed his perception. I was able to piece together from talking with tribal communities and conversations with the spirit realm had to do with explaining that, first of all, the earth is our mother. And that ancient tribal people had a very solid belief that was committed to that understanding. The earth is our mother. We are the children of our mother, the earth. The trees are our siblings. The animals are our siblings. And the ancient works that were put together with stone are part of the communication with our mother, the earth. And these were actually prayers for balance and harmony that were established. So the process was to speak a prayer into a stone and to place it on a stone grouping. And that was a prayer to our mother, the earth, calling for balance and harmony. And that was a part of the ancient tradition. And what we're finding out is that that ancient tradition goes back 10,000 or more years. So we are now including that optically stimulated luminescence into the overall work of confirming a site as being significant from the point of view of the National Historic Preservation Act. Doug Harris later told us at a day of remembrance that, yeah, the good work that has been done here at the falls has helped release those spirits that have been stuck here in the moment of greatest torment. And now they're continuing their voyage to the home, what Doug calls the home of Kautantawet, who was the creator who lives in the southwest. They're going to his garden. So we things have gotten better, but you've still got a lot of work to do. He didn't let us off the hook. We need to find our place on that circle, that circle of creation with all of the other beings out there. Traditionally speaking, humans are the youngest among creation. We are the last ones to show up here in that process, that grand process, which continues to unfold. And so we have the most to learn. And when we talk to each other only, we're kind of spinning our wheels because all we're doing is repeating everything we've already heard. We need to learn new things in order to effect a better story. And those voices are all around us. I'd like to think that the memory of the place by the Great Falls, known as Turner's Falls, is being re-examined through this joint town-tribal project for a reason. Working to preserve the site has brought Northeastern tribal descendants and townspeople together again. As long as we treat the people who perished here with the dignity and respect they didn't receive, we will be making some advances towards healing. And that's where I get my inspiration is by telling the story, the healing of the land takes place. There is the value in paying attention to what's being said around you from all of our relations in traditional values, traditional stories original instructions, whatever word you want to put on that. And again, we need to recover these understandings and these stories 
this knowledge, it's here. It's been here. It's still here. Uh, and if this place is going to continue in a good way with us participating in it, we need to reconnect to all of that. That's why we need to know about the story of Squawkeeg, Sukwakiak, preceding Northfield. We're not going back to some legendary other place. We need to figure this out, and we need to allow these other voices in order to move toward balance. That's how I see it. That's our mission. Move toward balance. Healing is really important, the renewal. People are coming back. Native people feel that they can come back. They didn't want to. We have our Gumtuk festival just opposite where the massacre happened. People had still trauma that they didn't know about, but they felt bad. They could feel the bad vibe, the bad medicine there. And we've been having now 10 years of music festivals with Native people who are being able to move beyond it. That's how I move through my life. That's how I look at the land. My ashes will be scattered here on this land, and, and I'll be smiling. You've been listening to the voices of Rich Holshue, David Brulé, Joe Gravelin, and Doug Harris, with the singing and storytelling of Elnu Abenaki Chief Roger Longtoe Sheehan. All of them are board members of the American Battlefield Protection Program, directing archaeological research of a 17th-century massacre of the indigenous people at the Great Falls. Flute and drum interludes performed by Abenaki flute and drum maker and composer Barry Higgins. Women singing, We Gather Reeds, Indian Lullaby, The Corn Harvest, Words and Music by Julia Jennings. Support for the oral history component of Northfield's 350th anniversary celebration came in part from the office of Senator Joe Comerford. She expressed particular interest in preserving indigenous views of the past in this region. Joan Stoya was the capable coordinator of the oral history project. Stacy Bond, director of the 350th committee, made room for new lights in the Dawnland on their crowded celebration schedule. Talking Across the Lines volunteered to produce the program in collaboration with the Nolambika Project Incorporated, a collaboration among Native descendants and non-Native people encouraging interactive research about a common history. Special thanks to the Nolambika Project for its ongoing mission to widen understanding of a shared past in search of balance and reciprocity, the cornerstones of peace and reconciliation. 
You may contact nolanbeekaproject.org online or at Post Office Box 285, Greenfield, Massachusetts, 01301. And thanks to our friend Dr. Peter Thomas for his sharing of the history and archaeology of this valley. With the Nolanbeeka Project Incorporated, I'm Jennifer Lee. Hey.